we recorded a podcast on generating your first 100 customers. And then you actually had this idea, Pete, to talk about that next phase of growth, which, I mean, depending on what type of company you're, you're, you're running, that, that next phase is going to look differently. But we decided on 200 to 500, like what that could look like. And you have a lot of experience yep. with that. So you started your own company, obviously, before your HubSpot days. You've advised lots of companies in this phase of growth. And then obviously HubSpot, uh, you were there. What, how early were you at HubSpot? Uh, we had like probably lowish di- double digit customers when I joined. So they had been selling for a while. You know, a lot of, a lot of the early customers didn't stick, but um, I remember the hundred customer party. So yeah, that was mentioned. like a month or two after I got there. There were four of us selling on doing an average of 10 deals per rep. So my guess is we, we were probably in the in the low double digits when I joined. That's crazy to even think HubSpot was was there was a time when they were in the low du- uh, double digits of a customer count. And yeah, yeah you referenced that 100 customer party. There was some some natty ice there, right? Some natural some natural ice was the, <laughs> was the drink of choice. Yes, uh, those days are long gone for HubSpot. I don't know if it was the drink of choice, but uh, <laughs> that's what somebody ran out and got like two 12 packs. <laughs> and uh, some pizza or something like that. We only have a budget for entertainment. Of course, HubSpot has like six or seven beers on tap now, I think. Yeah, right. All craft. And a local to Boston. Yes. Um, the good stuff. And then obviously Databox too. When you came on board, uh, like January 16-ish, 17, right? That's when you came on board? What was the... Yeah, January what, 17. What were they looking at then, customer count-wise? Um, there were... There were lots of users, so there were there were thousands of, of users, but there was a free level of the product that most of them were on. It was like low teens in terms of number of paying customers. Um, you know, some of those customers were paying some good money, but but still a pretty low volume. They had just launched uh, um, a self-service model a few months back where there was uh, the ability to try the product yourself without talking to anyone, uh, and they just started that pivot. They really didn't have it much in the way of marketing happening, and um, and so, and I think they had exhausted their networks a bit. So there was there was a pretty low number of paying customers. And so a plug for our not, pre- not 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 to say that I'm responsible for all <laughs> the, like you know I think we're, we're like just shy of 400 customers right now. So I'm not going to claim responsibility for it personally. Um, that you know, both the the product team, the customer service team that was in existence before I joined are responsible for a lot of that growth over the last year. I think it's more a factor of just time, not necessarily. I'm not trying to say it was uh, it was me <laughs> that did it all. So, and of course, the team that we've built has has been key. Right, and and just a plug, uh, we recorded a previous episode that I mentioned earlier on the first 100 customers. Uh, a lot focused around hustle, obviously nailing the customer, nailing the use case, um, you know, customer market fit, all those kinds of things. So, so check out that episode. Obviously, there'll be some recurring themes here, um, but check that one out. This one, as I mentioned, is about that next phase from 100 or 200 to 500. So going off of that, Pete, after surpassing that 100 customer count, what are a few things that get easier? And then on the flip side, what are a few things that get harder? <laughs> um, so easier, I'd say like sleeping at night becomes a little bit easier, <laughs> right? Uh, everyone takes a lot of risk to start a company 
the you know the team that that founded the data box had been had been at it for years um you know trying to figure out you know where where they could how they could acquire customers and what pro- will be the right product you know really that i hate the phrase but that product market fit um and and so once you've gotten to once we got to 100 customers i, I felt like you know we we it was a reasonably safe assumption that we could get the next few hundred, next few thousand, even probably next few tens of thousands uh, of customers uh, because we had figured out something that was compelling, something compelling for them to buy to continue to use. Uh, that wasn't like a uh, wasn't like we woke up one morning and that happened, but through iteration, experimentation, listening to a lot of that customer feedback from those first hundred customers, doing case studies, things like that, you know, we could. We can feel a lot more confident that we we have a product that we can now sell to lots of companies. So, so I'd say sleeping becomes a lot easier because you, <laughs> you know that the risk that people took um, to join the company, um, it, you know, it wasn't wasn't uh, wasn't too foolhardy. <laughs> I'm sure every anybody that started something or uh, joined in an early stage startup uh, can relate to that. Right. And I think second, you asked like, what yeah, what are a few things that get harder? Yeah. Um, every, pretty much everything changes at a hundred, um, customers, uh, assuming you're, you know, you're going to grow up past a hundred customers for us, our average sale price is quite low. Uh, it's uh, 130 bucks a month or something like that on average. So, so hundred customers does not mean that we can support the team. You know, we're venture back, so we have plenty of cash in the bank, but, but, um, hundred customers is certainly not something where we can, um, sit back and, and, and rest on our laurels. Uh, and to go to that next you know, next phase where we get hundreds of customers or thousands of customers, everything, everything really changes. Uh, You know, as we talked about on the earlier podcast before our customers, everything's pretty experimental. Uh, There really isn't a lot of value in writing out processes because chances are the processes are going to be a little different. Uh, There isn't a lot of value in like trying to perfect your website product description, because once again, the product's probably going to change a little bit. Um, you know, there isn't a whole lot of value in like documenting your sales process because once again, the whole value prop might change and the whole sales process might change. It might change your product a bit um, so that, so that, you know, this, the whole sales process you were running initially is, is uh, what work as you go forward. So, so I think after that hundred customers though, you need to be much more diligent around planning uh internal communication uh and, and really um you know switching away from being nimble every day to much more around like here's our here's our annual plan we're going to work backwards like there's our targets we're going to backwards to our quarterly plan we're going to have monthly targets we'll you know we'll track activity on a weekly and daily basis um so a lot changes around that that uh that planning process and the internal communication Right. And it's, that's even something I've noticed, uh, at Databox in, you know, the past even six months or less. So maybe this could be a story for another podcast. But, um, when I was talking to Pete about potentially joining the team, that, you know, we had conversations, Pete, for what, like a month, two months, something like that. I came up to Boston. Yeah. Um, yeah. we talked a lot on the phone. And I remember telling you, like, uh, wh- whether it was ideas or things that I had, and he'd be like, you were just like really blunt and being like, no, like, that's not important right now. Like, just, just, you really like reiterated the value of trying a lot of things, doing things, um, 
learning from customers uh, process. Not that it wasn't important, but at the time it was really about like just sweating, getting out there and learning as much as possible. But even in the last six months or, or less since I've been here, that's changed. And like you've talked a lot about planning and process and documenting things that we're doing that are working. Um, so that it doesn't, it hasn't even been that long. And like, I've already seen that change. Um, yeah, I think Databox. You, you joined us probably, I'm not sure how many customers we had exactly when you joined, but my guess it was, it was around a hundred, right? Yep. I think so. Yeah. And we're up to up close to 400 now. So, um, and, and like the number of free users have skyrocketed too. So I like, you've been a key part of helping us go from that hundred to the 400 part. Uh, in the stuff that you're doing around product marketing or um, email nurturing or in-app nurturing, a lot of stuff, the drift stuff that you've been doing. Like there's a lot of stuff uh, that you've done to, to help that. And yeah, you're right. Like um, you came in with some like, hey, we should switch from, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't have a freemium model, we should have a free <laughs> trial model. And you had your experience from Litmus. And I'm like, and I'm like, I just shut it down immediately. Like, no, uh, this is a freemium business. We're going to build a freemium business. This is uh, a critical piece of how we're going to do it. We have a generous free version of the product. Uh, and we're going to, we're going to go to market and, and, uh, and, you know, and basically be the easiest thing to adopt at the lowest price point, And we're going to get a lot of market share that way. So, so like that was a, a very important decision that I think I made like right before that, you know, pretty early on. And then you came in and I'm like, nope, that's the last thing we're going to change right now. It's about, you know, (laughs) leveraging what we know and doing it over and over again. Now that we got 100 customers, let's do the same damn thing to get, you know, to get 200, 300, 400, 500. I was going to say like, uh, yeah, that was funny. I remember that conversation. Those were pretty spirited. I won't even say debates because they weren't debates. (laughs) (laughs) And and like Pete's very diplomatic and very uh, more so than anybody I've, I've worked with, like open to ideas and you don't like to micromanage, like you want to let things breathe. But in that case, it wasn't really, it wasn't really a debatable topic. Yeah. The, the freemium model and yeah, yeah the, the points yeah. you just made. So, um, it, yeah, it's fun. It's funny you bring that up because we actually have a dual model right now. When, when they originally launched the plan or the, the product, like the self-service version of the product, like in late 2016, they had a 14 day free trial. And at the end of that 14 free day, day free trial, you had all the features available to you in the trial, uh, no limits or anything. And then you had to decide whether you want to go to a paid plan or a free plan at the end of the 14 days or just delete your account and, um, or frankly, ignore our emails. <laughs> um, and so, Hopefully. um, right. Yeah. yeah so it's you know, many people do people try products all the time and with no intention of using them, I think. Um, and so the, we actually are now, and that's been in place for our non-agency funnel for a while. When we launched an agency version in 2017, we embraced the free free model, um, and so we're actually now switching the non-agency model to freemium too. So now, when somebody starts a um, a uh, starts using our product, they go right into a free version, free forever version, uh, and if they want higher limits or more features, um, they have to upgrade. Uh, so so we've now embraced that. Now we'll have one funnel, uh, I should say a funnel that works the same way regardless of whether you're an agency or not an agency. So so we've, we're finally at the point where we're, we're embracing that. You've talked about this before. I think you've even tweeted that freemium and you know lower barrier of entry into a product is sort of like the new marketing and sales right and yeah um you know well like i just alluded to before we've had discussions 
um, on, you know, uh, your views on, on the freemium model and why it works. Uh, HubSpot has even, you know, in the past couple of years or maybe less has moved to like a free, you know, a, a, a free plan. Um, whereas, you know, five years ago that, that didn't exist. So like, why do you, uh, why are you so, I guess, um, high on, on the freemium model? And, and obviously it doesn't work in all cases, but why does it work in, in data boxes case? Um, I think it could work in most cases. Uh, when I look at, you know, like a 10 years at HubSpot, the, they, we started out one product, one price. It was inexpensive. It was 250 a month. Um, and then, you know, I think, don't quote me, this is public information. Um, so some, anybody can look it up. But my guess is the HubSpot average sale price now is, is it for, for a marketing customer is like in the 12 grand range uh, a year. And so they went from like 250 to $1,000 a month. Um, the product got really, really broad. The sales process got really heavy. Um, and as a result, the cost of customer acquisition went way up. And then meanwhile, you have companies like, like MailChimp who you know, have never really raised any money. They actually have more revenue than HubSpot. Um, and they have very few, and I'm not sure the exact number, but I'm guessing they have very few salespeople, um, or especially compared to the number that that HubSpot has. And so when I look at that model, it's like I would rather be Mailchimp right now than HubSpot, because all Mailchimp has to do is hire some developers, launch a new product, or launch a new feature and roll it out. And uh, it's frankly exactly what they're doing. They just rolled out, out you know, Facebook ads. Um, and I think AdWords management, uh, I think they just rolled out landing pages and I believe they're all free. Like they're not adding any cost to it. And so they're keeping that very generous freemium model, very generous, you know, pricing packaging model. Um, and I think, you know, when, when I, when I look at their, the future, or when I think I see the future, I see potential disruption for likes of, you know, HubSpot, Marketo, Salesforce, um, as, as Companies like Mailchimp just keep reinvesting and offering more stuff at a lower price. It's really hard to go back and reverse that. Um, and so, so I think the future of, of software sales in general is just you know you invest in your product first, uh, and you give you give it away. It's a lot easier to write a piece of code once and give it away thousands or millions of times uh, than it is to hire you know enough salespeople to to sell something a thousand a million times. Uh, and then I think after product, the investment should be marketing. Marketing has significant leverage over uh, over sales too, since um, since they, you can create content or figure out processes that allow uh, prospects to self service, self educate themselves. Um, and then I think the final thing that any software company should invest is is uh, is salespeople. Um, yeah, like uh, some people would say that that's like what I just said is only true for SMBs, um, and but in enterprise you need you need salespeople. I think that's still true today. However, I don't think it'll be true in the future. Um, it's pretty easy to to get into a large, large account through a department and expand from there with with still with low sales effort. We have some Fortune 500 companies that that use our product without you know without ever talking to us. Um, so, so I don't, I don't think, um, I think that the, the future of going to market, uh, with, with software will be freemium, um, and then marketing investments and then sales investments. 
And you're, you're you got me on a, quite a tangent, tangent yeah. there, John. <laughs> it's a good one, and the reason I said that it might not work in all cases was just based on so my own experience. Uh, for those familiar with Litmus, obviously Pete, you are. Um, Litmus is the industry standard in email testing software, um, and they had tried a uh, quote unquote freemium model for about six months, and what we had found was. It almost served as like it was it was good enough, it, and what, what what we hypothesized anyways was that a lot of customers who otherwise would have become paid were okay with like the more limited freemium model that could kind of get them some of the way there. Um, and I'm sure there was a lot more that mm-hmm. happened in terms of marketing that that we could have done differently, um, uh, you know, nurturing and, and and that kind of thing, but. Um, you know, at the time, it it seemed like we we had just taken a big hit, and we were like, maybe this maybe this freemium model just doesn't work for us. You know, it's Litmus is a, is a software that maybe yeah. like a team is going to be involved with. Maybe there's higher friction to getting the team involved, and um and so yeah, it just felt it felt safer and easier for us, I think, to to have like the standard like free trial seven mm-hmm. days. Um, you know, that, that yeah, kind of no, thing. I I think I think it's a lot safer to do a free trial. You're, you know, it's basically you basically. There's nothing free after the, after that period, so um, you're not committing to to actually really delivering free software and leveraging it. Free trials can certainly be good sales tools. We used to use them in HubSpot all the time, especially right, in competitive situations. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah you, you, that yeah. and you know, I think at, at HubSpot we used to sell against a few competitors that that legitimately weren't as easy to use, um, actually very hard to use, and so we would we would actually throw out. Uh, I'm sure they still do this. That you know, when it's a competitive situation, uh, I'd say you know, why don't you, why don't you, wh- you know, why don't you start a trial of both? Or what did what did uh, the other company say when you asked for a free trial? And and or we'd say go ask them for a free trial. Um, <laughs> and undoubtedly they'd come back and say no. You know that company would would refuse, um, and it would be pretty much game over. So you didn't even have to use the free trial <laughs> uh, to uh, to 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 uh leverage the free trial if that makes any sense in that situation that competitive situation yeah um but you br- but you bring up a good point like i think you know if if the product is easy to use both freemium and free trials are are good tools um and i think that's that's really important uh is that the pro- you put a lot of effort into designing a product experience so it's easy to set up and easy to get value out of quickly um and I, I would i would suggest I think we talked about this before, but I suggest that Litmus you just gave away too much for what the product is, or they need to develop uh, an additional product or features that that are worth paying for when the companies are bigger. Yeah, um, we certainly have plenty of people probably that will never upgrade um, to a paid plan as well. I'm fine with that, but it's a matter of paying attention to those ratios and making sure that you know that that. And not the people that are getting the value out of the product are, are paying something at least. Right. The, yeah. Discussions we had all had. And, and it's funny, like I would love to hear your response to this. So dur- during this time, so I had once heard from an executive uh, that, you know, like obviously I was really bullish on freemium, uh, you know, in, in terms of raising customer account. And I'd heard like, na- you know, I had been asked this question from an executive, name me one example besides Dropbox Name me one company that has been super successful with a freemium model. And, you know, off the top of my head, I, you know, I was like, yeah, Slack, I, does that count, right? That's a, that's a B2B software. They have a freemium model that's yeah. you know, increased their adoption. Um, 
so that you know that there, there's certainly some trepidation i think around that right the the, the freemium but it's, yeah. it's, it's becoming so much more widespread I, yeah i love that one that's that yeah, we used uh there was some executives up so i won't name names that would would say the same thing it doesn't that's that's stupid um you know there's no other company that's done that that's for consumer things like that um but there's there's lots of them now you know there's there's uh there's mailchimp uh is i think a a great example um zendesk right helps get there's like a lot of these that i think think have some level of drift yeah drift of course yeah um so i think yeah they're like people have said you know freemium b2b is dead blah 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 like it's come and gone and i i I think it's silly to to say that whether it does or doesn't work. It's a matter of just figuring it out. Um, the way I look at it is like <clears throat> software companies are sort of like media companies in a way. Um, you know, where software companies you can write something once um, and 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 literally let people use it um, millions of times at a pretty marginal cost. Whereas with media companies, like they're constantly hiring journalists, writers, editors, designers. Etc. to constantly produce content and contents in order just to, to keep the machine running. And so when you look at the economics of software, it's it's got to be one of the most you know, amazing, amazing ROIs possible. So it's just a matter of creativity uh, in terms of figuring out how to apply that to to you know your the software you've created. We could probably riff on this all day. Uh, uh, so, something you had teased before was um like how the team changes and how the team can evolve and r- roles that become important um as the customer base grows past that you know 100 customer count and you know from your experience at HubSpot and even now at Databox as we're in like uh, right in the sort of uh gr- like ground zero of this period is like how does how do the functions of the organization kind of evolve and like teams and how they grow um what are some things I guess that 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 you've seen there? Um, so quite a bit has has changed. Like so, I think we we added. It wasn't like an abrupt change. I'd say where we like, all right, we're going to change the organization now. Now that we have a hundred customers, but so a lot of it was like in motion already. Um, but as you know, I've, we've built the the team the go-to market team very gradually over the last year. Um, and each, each new hire, each investment was designed to kind of, for lack of a better way of saying it, takes something off my plate and move it to someone else. So um, in the beginning, like I joined uh, and it was basically the product and the customer support team, you know, Tommy who's in, in our, who leads up our customer support. Uh, and, and like everybody kind of does customer support uh, in a good way. Like everybody's helping, and um, you know, even the developers take uh, take customer sort report requests and, and handle them. Um, and so, but it was largely Tommy doing that full time, and me kind of selling and marketing and and helping with some of the customer support and onboarding. Um, and then um, I hired Tori, uh, who uh, takes took on, on the agency onboarding processes, and then I hired Kevin, who took on the top of the funnel marketing, and then Brian joined uh, to focus on agency sales. Uh, and then you joined to focus on middle of the funnel marketing. We built up the support team a little bit more. We have Emil over there now, uh, uh, you know, helping with helping with more support. 
Um, and and then we hired two people, uh, Nate and Spiela, to to um, help us with prospecting on the, uh, into agencies. So it's like we've gradually built up the team. I think it you know it's now like ten people. Uh, and my philosophy with that is like whenever there's clearly a repetitive task that needs to be done and that that's working, we should hire somebody to specialize in it. And so like once I personally sold the first 20 marketing agencies on the platform or 30, uh, like I, I couldn't onboard them myself and do other things. So that's why it made sense to hire Tori. Like once we realized that the blogging would really help us get in front of agencies and build our overall marketing um, uh, assets, help us drive signups, that made sense to hire Kevin, right, to, to, to run that. So I'd say it's, it, it wasn't like an overnight thing, but, you know, each time we realized something was working, it was a matter of, like, hiring somebody to, to do that and own it, um, you know. Do that over and over again uh, so that the business is kind of like a little bit of a machine or an assembly line. Right, and it's is it uh, it's it's obviously different in a in a in a sales dominated environment, right? Like kind of like HubSpot was or 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 is. Um, only now they have a free product, but you know, in your early days at HubSpot, it's I mean, if salespeople are selling, you hire more, right? Whereas, yeah, I think it was like two marketers, like one support person, uh, a uh, nobody did onboarding. Uh, at the time, and we had like ten salespeople, and then we started, you know, building up the services team to match it. But it was very like just invest in sales, and that was a a function of like online marketing or SaaS marketing back then. And that you hired, you know, is actually a step change better than what most other companies do. If you look at like go back a generation to Salesforce is the perfect example right they had a massive outside sales team then they built an inside sales team uh hubspot took the approach of like we're going to sell to the smb market and therefore inside sales is more efficient and allow us to be more cost effective and kind of sell sell to that uh you know sell to the smb market um more cost effectively and now now the next generation is like you know we're going to build freemium products uh we're going to invest in marketing and then we'll hire salespeople. so i think it's uh a little bit more quite a bit different now right and again, we, we talked about this earlier, growing to 100 customers really characterizes a lot of hustle, a lot of exploration, trial and error, a lot of one-to-one, what you call block and tackle methods of acquisition. How do you characterize like that 200 to 500 uh, approach? Like, How would you characterize that? Um, well, I, I, don't, I still feel like it's lots of hustle. It's like the, probably the same, if not more amount of hustle. I feel actually more pressure now than I did getting the first hundred like you know we worked hard at getting there but it was it was almost like getting through tryouts in a way right now we've like made the team and now we're in, we're in the a-league and we have to actually win um and we have you know we have to hit, hit set our numbers set our targets and and hit hit it um so i, I still feel like it's a it's actually more hustle um than than necessarily that first hundred i'm not sure it's like i feel more i feel more pressure um like last night for example we're in the process of of changing tweaking i should say pricing and packaging a little bit we rolled out a lot of new features and so um we're gonna roll out some revised pricing 
Um, for any of our existing customers listening, do not worry that your grandfathered on your current plan. We will not change your pricing. Um, but uh, but uh, we'll introduce new pricing for for new customers. And like th- like we want to get that done. It's really important to get it done now. It'll help us um, you know, increase our average sale price a little bit. Uh, and a few other benefits help us communicate our value a lot better by um, you know listing out these features and our pricing and all that. And so. You know, it's Sunday night, and um, my wife made dinner, and she's like, "Hey, dinner's ready. If you want to eat with us," and I'm like, hey, "I'll be out there in a minute." And like, 45 minutes went by, and I realized <laughs> like they're putting the dishes away. And I'm like, "Ah, I'm such an ass." And and so so I'm like, "All right, well, what are you guys doing now?" And we ended up playing some board games, and so <laughs> we didn't get done until till like nine o'clock at night doing that. And I'm like, "Oh shit, I still have to go do pricing." And like, the pricing is setting pricing is really complex. There's so many factors. So the like, last thing I want to do on Sunday night. Um, so, but you know, two hours later, I got it done and chipped it off. And um, you know, the team that's is putting together a bunch of the uh, product limitations and the new pricing page and all that's in Slovenia. So I wanted to get it to them uh, in their morning. Um, so I don't know. I feel I still I feel more urgency, more stress now. I think than I did uh, than I did in that first hundred. That explains why I got some emails from you late last night because I never get emails <laughs> from Pete past like even like yeah. six six o'clock. I mean, it, it always seems like Pete is really good at at you know sh- shutting off when he needs to. But last night, yeah, I got some emails late, and I was like, man, this is pretty uncharacteristic. I guess that uh, maybe I shouldn't be checking my email that late. But uh, but yeah, I guess that that explains. Yeah, feel a lot. free, feel free not to. I do not expect the, <laughs> uh, people to check check the email. You should. Damn I don't want to interrupt your family time or be that guy. <laughs> I think, um, you know, my the first years of, uh, so I had a startup for like four years before HubSpot, and then HubSpot was clearly a startup, which was pretty high pressure. Um, you know, it was, it's a good working environment, but but the the goals were lofty, especially in the early days, and the resources to hit them were were basically our time, and um, I worked way way too much in both of those scenarios, both in my own startup and at HubSpot. And forgot, lost track of the importance of family time, friend time, my own time, being healthy, exercising, and all that stuff. So, um, you know, once HubSpot was moderately successful, uh, I, I, you know, I should say moderately. Once HubSpot was successful, um, I, I decided to to change that and and reprioritize things in my life. And so, working for me on a weekend is not something that I typically do. And, and don't want to make a habit of it, but I do feel that pressure now. Uh, a lot of people are, on the flip side, a lot of people in the company, a lot of families uh, are are uh, dependent on us, right? Executing. Um, there's a team of now, like I think, eighteen, nineteen people at, at DataBox, and so our success determines the success of them and their families. And same thing with our customers and partners, right? They're investing their time into our, to learn our and use our platform. And I feel that responsibility to make this a, a very successful business so that, so that we can continue to not just provide the value that we're providing, but continue to add to the value we're providing. So I guess that's the, the motivation, but I think it's important to balance life and, and work. Yeah, that'll be a separate. That'll be a separate podcast. But uh, I think yeah, we have like three news. Three. I'm totally <laughs> not on track today. Am I? Sorry. <laughs> no, it's a. Uh, I think it illustrates the point well of what we asked earlier. What gets harder? Uh, you know, the pressure mounts. Um, and then obviously, what, what we just asked is how you characterize that next phase of growth. Um, 
And, and you've talked about too, like momentum is key. Like without momentum, uh, growth, uh, that it's harder to keep customers happy, harder to grow your reach and, and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, I guess like, what do you, what do you do differently to ensure momentum, um, in, in this next phase of growth? Um, I think, well, I think momentum actually in a way ensures growth. Uh, I think, you know, success breeds success. It sounds trite, but I think it's true. Uh, you know, the, the very fact that we're having, uh, how to get to, you know, 380 or 400 customer podcast when we just recorded the gotta get to a hundred one <laughs> a few months back shows momentum. Right. And uh, that wasn't necessarily the design of, of this, but but I think showing that momentum is important to your employees, to your customers, to your partners. Um, you know, the more momentum that a business shows, uh, the more likely people are to be confident that that um, you know that they're they're using the right product, they're using the right service, they're relying on the right people. These companies can execute. Uh, this company can execute, and therefore they're going to be for, be there for me. You know, not just months, but years from now. And so I think that that momentum is is uh, is really important. There's there's a lot of like planning that goes into ensuring ensuring that momentum. Um, one of the things, as you know, we started doing a few months back is setting monthly targets for for a lot of different metrics in our business. Everything from you know sales, of course, and marketing to services and uh, numbers uh, was customer service and proactive service as well as product uh, adoption um, and so like we started setting those numbers a few months back it was hard to set realistic numbers because we didn't have a lot of baseline data um, we were still figuring things out uh, but we started doing it nonetheless I, I think in this phase what really changes is that um, it is that we we're, we have to be more hardcore about setting them accurately and then hitting them you know before when when we missed say a, a pql target um or or even a, even like a, a monthly sales target which we did once or twice um like it wasn't as huge a deal but now it's critical that we hit those numbers because if like we don't hit our traffic number or sign up number then we're not going to hit our sales number and that means we're not going to hit our upsell number and there's all slew of other downstream things that that you know impact uh, the success of the whole company. So I think at this stage, it's so important to set, set numbers, hold people accountable to hitting them. If you don't hit them, you either need to reflect on the strategy or people need to work harder. Um, so um, I think that's what, you know, that that's what changes. And it's all because momentum is, is so important. Right. And uh, sales and marketing being dependent on one another. And I mean, really the whole org being dependent on each other. Um, but something that's this is pretty serendipitous, because I, I just saw that you tweeted something about this this morning about sales and marketing alignment, how it used to be, the question used to be like, how can marketing help sales, which obviously is uh, famous for causing a lot of friction between marketing and sales teams. But now y- you've sort of and you know, this has kind of been reflected in some of the things we've talked about today about freemium and, and that kind of thing. But like, it's more, it's, it's also about how can sales enable marketing too, right? Yeah. I think like the, you know, sales and marketing alignment is, is critical. Sales and marketing and services alignment is critical. Alignment in general in any company is critical across all functions. Um, and so, uh, but 
you know, I think HubSpot, Marketo, a few companies have really popularized this concept of sales and marketing alignment as a very simple thing where you define, you know, define a qualified lead, whether it's marketing qualified lead or sales qualified or product qualified lead, whatever, but you define that qualified lead and then you calculate how many of those qualified leads you need in order to hit a sales target. And then you make marketing responsible for hitting those sales qualified leads, um, those numbers every month so that sales will hit their number. And, you know, if marketing fails, that means sales are going to fail and marketing is not allowed to fail at that. And, and then there's also this whole concept of sales enablement, which is really a marketing function where you're helping to create content or create materials or create process or internal systems that help a salesperson kind of more efficiently do their job, more effectively do their job. Um, and I think those things are all great. But I think what we're what companies are missing is the opportunity for sales to help marketing. When you peel back what a salesperson is, they do things, you know, how they do things, it's it's one-on-one. When you peel back what a marketing does, marketing person does things it's one to many or it impacts lots of people and so um you know i think being so focused on just one way of doing sales and marketing alignment um basically makes systems where people are kind of missing the forest through the trees uh, and i think there's a big opportunity for salespeople to think how can i help marketing do their job better how can the one-on-one interaction that i have with people uh, uh drive you know, enable marketers to to create better content, or um, or to create better processes, or help product teams um, improve the experience that the customer gets. So, so I think the that's what my tweet was getting at. We're doing some of that here, where um, you're doing a lot of that, right? Where you're where you're um, you're basically feeding, you know, you, or we have people, salespeople basically reaching out to prospects, asking them to fill out surveys, asking them to do market research. And then we're you know, taking that, we're feeding it back into both marketing content as well as product decisions, right? You're doing stuff where you're actually almost acting like a salesperson in some ways by doing a website chat through Drift uh, and taking those learnings and creating content then uh, that we can leverage uh, in in our marketing processes, right? Not just in our sales process so that more people will buy without even talking to a salesperson or with very limited interaction uh, with our, with our sales and services team. Right. So I think um, it's a little bit of a shift in thinking um, that you're using one-on-one interaction, which is most usually done best by salespeople to drive uh, marketing and product decisions. Yeah. I think for a long time, marketers, have done that, but everything was everything is done through automation, and obviously automation is really important. But I think something I've learned from from joining a company of this size, uh, obviously we've grown you know significantly since since I've gotten here just in the fall, but is the importance of that the one to one conversation. Obviously, you want to make things repeatable, but uh, you know things like drift and things like intercom and and talking to customers every day or every week. And uh, really understanding what the challenges are. Right, and you are. meet you meet with Tori, Tori and Brian pretty right. much once I, a week, right? Yeah, I talk. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I talk to. And Brian. they're helping you do your projects as much as you're helping them, right? Exactly, and and something funny. So I talked to Brian Mosley, who's our partner development manager here at DataBox, um, and and he's obviously working with agencies every single day. And so I was talking to him last week, and it was funny. It was, I think it was on Friday. I told him, you know, Brian, because oh, because he had mentioned. So we're using Drift and. Um, you know, I've gotten into a lot of conversations with 
prospects from our homepage or certain pages of our site, like our integrations page where people might have some questions. And I jump right in. I keep one, I keep my, my drift messenger open on uh, um, this display monitor that I have. And anytime it comes, uh, a conversation comes up, if I can, I jump right in. And I've, you know, scheduled mm-hmm. a, a bunch of meetings with Brian through that. Um, you know, we, I, we find some, some qualified customers, they have some questions, I tell them about Brian, they're thrilled to get on the phone. And so Brian tells me, you're my, uh, I forget what exact word he said, but he's like, you're my favorite uh, BDR right now. And I told him, I was like, <laughs> you know, something I've learned from being at a company of this size is that marketing looks a hell of a lot like sales. And he goes, well, you want to know something I've learned? Sales looks a hell of a lot like marketing. Um, <laughs> and I think it's just kind of points to like how, how things have evolved um, even in the past few years um, with freemium and uh, you know, through website chat, having more one-to-one conversations and, and being closer to the customer. So, uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, we're, we're still small enough where that alignment is, is relatively easy, but I imagine that gets more challenging as you scale. Um, I mean, uh, I, I would assume that's something you probably saw at HubSpot, right? As the team continues to get bigger, um, you know, more elements come into play and it might, might be a little more challenging to be able to hit that alignment that you need. Yeah, I think we're already, you know, feeling it now. Now, too, here is is that it, alignment becomes a lot harder as you specialize roles because then the people you hire don't have any visibility or, or knowledge of what the other people do, um, and it becomes easy to say, "Oh, they suck. They missed their number," or, um, you know, "Why is that person get treated that way? They're not performing." Right? It's like there's all these different reasons why I think things break down or why are they getting resources when we're not right. Uh, um, and I saw all, all that stuff at, at HubSpot. Um, but I even, even on our scale, I start to see it now. And I think that's the, another big shift from like a hundred when you get, to, you know, from before hundred to after hundred customers is that when you start specializing, planning becomes really critical. Like before a hundred, like it's, it's almost useless to, to do a lot of planning because by the time you start doing stuff, you're going to realize like this isn't this is a stupid thing to do. We should go do this other thing. Um, and so by the time you like set a plan, um, it's dead. I think there's a phrase like the best play best laid plans often go awry or something like that. Um, an old old phrase. And I think that's true before 100 customers. After 100 customers, it's it's a, quite different. Things get a lot more complicated. Planning gets a lot more critical. A lot more people are dependent on change or are impacted by changes, both internal and external. Uh, and so, you know, planning becomes really critical at the stage. Right. Yeah. Goal setting, uh, planning. And then I think the last thing that you had mentioned to me before saying no to things, um, it, it, right. Cause it's yeah. easy to get distracted with, with, uh, new things. And, um, and you've talked a lot about like the switching costs and distraction costs being too high. Um, yeah. so like, is, is there a balance there? Because obviously you want to experiment with new things, right. Or, or, or try different things that could influence <laughs> sign up to, paid or yeah. visit to sign up. Where, where's the balance there? So yeah, the, the way I balance this is, is not, I wouldn't recommend it necessarily, but, I'll, but this is, this is me and I'll share what I do uh, is, is like, I'm horrible at saying no to things. And so I don't say no to many things for myself. What I'm really good at is making my people say no to things or saying no <laughs> to them uh, if necessary. Uh, I, again, I don't think that's the best practice, but um, I love the brainstorm. I love to experiment. Like the the figuring things out to me is the fun part of running a business. Um, 
I think uh, you know one of the reasons I wanted to be CEO is because I always get to figure out new things. It's like there's always new challenges um, because I have my hands in, in a lot of different things. Um, and so uh, I'm not great at, at saying no, but it is critical to say no. And I learned this the hard way, I think, at HubSpot several times. Um, and my, my old boss, Mark Roberge, was really good at at getting people to to focus in, and I think he was the right guy to take HubSpot to to 100, you know, from zero to 100 million, uh, because he was so good at saying no and making people focus. And then, like his thing would be like, "What are the three things you're focused on right now?" Uh, and he would be so out of my say, "Well, here they are," and I'd list off like six. And he'd say, "Nope, that's six. What are the three things you're focused on?" Uh, <laughs> and so he would force me to do that, and then. You know, and then what happens after that is like you pick those three things, probably through lots of conversation with lots of people, uh, and, and up and down the org and all that, and and then and then like those three things are the three things you focus on for a long period of time, and as as an organization gets bigger, it's like that period of time is longer to the point where most organizations that are a few hundred employees or more, like they pick those three things for the year, uh, and that's all they focus on for a year. I think in early stage age of things like you're picking on th- you're picking three things for the day and those three things might change but at this stage where we're at where it's like 100 to 500 i think it's like it's important to pick three things for the month um you know and and focus on it um you know usually that's one maybe two things for the day um and so i think it's really critical uh, uh for focus you know it's also really critical to make sure that not that people are working on things in, in in unison. Like we don't want you focused on increasing our average sale price, and Brian focused on increasing our you know our our volume of deals because those two things are probably going to compete um, in any business. And so um, I think it's important that you know largely you're focused on a handful of key metrics in the org, and then there's some sub or derivative goals that that happen after that. Um, so. It's uh, and it's important to say no to the the things that that don't impact those, which is hard because people love people love showing their output and yeah, I think that's an adjustment yeah. for for I mean for everybody. I mean it's it's uh it's been an adjustment for me coming from a an organization that obviously was bigger headcount wise revenue and you you have to level set you have to sort of realign and and, and really zero in on those like you said one the three things over the course of a week or a month that that you want to influence because yeah you, you can't afford to get distracted at our at our size i mean i guess you can make right. that argument once you hit any size right you can't afford to get distracted but especially where we're at so um, yeah, yeah, I think yeah. Just when you, yeah, as you as you get bigger, focus becomes critical. Uh, less, fewer, fewer goals, fewer projects. Um, with everybody's focus and alignment around it, um, I think become critical. Um, in it, as any company scales, I think for where we're at, at like, you know, we we our goal uh, is to is to get more of the people that sign up for our product to to be a paid customer, uh, and and so. Everybody's focused on that, right? We got our support team focused in on on PQLs. You know, you're focused in on on doing a lot more nurturing, doing some research about you know why companies stop setting up and using our product. We got um, you know Brian focused in on a target market that we know converts at a higher rate. Um, so there's there's lots of people working on that one goal, right? And so and we know that like we're not we're gonna we're gonna sacrifice some 
we could probably raise prices a lot more. And we're not going to do that because that would reduce the number of people that go from signing up for the free version to paid. And so we make make those trade-offs because of we want to have that singular focus and have everybody kind of row in the boat in the same direction. That's great. And that, 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 that's a good place, I think, to leave off. And I think, like Pete alluded to earlier, this wasn't intended, but this episode and the previous one sort of coincided with where we were at as an organization, which when we first launched Ground Up was one of our goals was to not just talk to people and interview really smart people on their journeys in building businesses from the ground up, setting goals, tracking performance, and and, and succeeding, but also like sharing ours um, as we're going along with it. And so I think this was really great that we were able to sort of uh, record this conversation at a time where we're right in this phase. And Pete, I guess the plan is we'll record another one in a short time, about 500 to 1,000. Does that sound good? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I think there's Might probably well plenty of topics we, you and I could riff on. So yeah, yeah, yeah. we'll see. Maybe there's something in between. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I think uh, we'll continue. I, I think um, I, want, I want people to, to understand our logic. And for those that are, that are, 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 are listening in, I know there's a lot of super fans on there. Um, you know, appreciate their, their commitment and support to us. Yeah, this weekend, I got an email from, from um, Eric Pratt, a uh, revenue 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 river is a HubSpot diamond partner and, and uh, a premier data box partner. Uh, they, he wrote like a, a 1500 word article about, why he his agency is hardcore about setting goals with clients and hitting them and and how they do it and i had no idea that was coming at all so like i'm and it's like a brilliant article it's well written so i know he and probably other people on his team spent time doing it um and so i appreciate like the fact that people are putting in that much time to to join our our, our mission um, and, and I hope to, that this podcast and the calls that we're doing, um, help people know that we want to share what we're doing so that, um, so that, uh, they're part of the team too. For sure. Uh, yeah. And guys like Eric and, and many that are like him are, 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 are doing great things and, and, and killing it. So yeah, thanks Eric and, and, and everyone else that's listened to and, and, and our partners, of course. So, um, yeah, we're, we're going to keep doing this and keep sharing, uh, you know, uh, all, all the, uh, all the challenges we face and the things that are working, whether it's through here or, or the blog as well. So, uh, yeah, thanks for, thanks everyone for listening. And, uh, we'll be back with one of these soon. Thanks Pete for, for sharing all the, uh, for being so transparent, not just with, with, uh, you know, with stuff from, from your past and, and your business and HubSpot, but obviously data box and sharing so much information that other people might find otherwise sensitive. So thanks for being so open. Thanks so much for listening. If you found this episode valuable, check out our other episodes or subscribe to get new ones. If you want to support the show, we'd love for you to leave a review or share it with someone. And if you want a tool to help you track and improve your business performance, try Databox free at databox.com.